Alright, finally, the part three of the dialogues concerning natural religion and our conclusion to our discussion of Hume. Um, so when we left off, we had finally switched gears. Our original discussion was about Cleanthes' principle that um, the world is like a machine and therefore God must be like an inventor, possessed of intelligence, possessed of some uh, mind that allows him to design the universe according to intelligible rational principles. And Philo systematically took that apart by proposing that this was a very weak analogy, that the machine is not actually all that much like um, the world as we see it, and that you could just as easily make a comparison that the world is like a body or like a plant, um, and that therefore it reproduces by vegetation, and the origin could be through like reproduction. Um, likewise, because the principle of reason is only one of many, there are any number of possible explanations for how the world came to be, including the fact that like matter and nature has its own principle inherent in itself, and there is no need for a god or deity at all. Um, so after all of these refutations, Demia finally proposed his own argument for the nature of God, specifically that God is incomprehensible. Um, he used basically a variation of Aquinas's fifth way of proving the existence of God, basically saying that, like, everything has to come from somewhere, nothing can come from itself, at least, you know, as observed in normal habits, there can't be an infinite succession, therefore there must be some original creator cause of itself, and that cause of itself thing um, must be what we call God. To which Philo also systematically took that apart, primarily with the help of Cleanthes on this one. Like, Cleanthes was apparently ready to go as far as uh, finally turning his skeptical powers on rather than defending his own position. So they proceeded to argue that, like, these a priori arguments have never convinced anyone. Um, there is no reason to think that all things must come from this one uncreated thing. Um, it could be that matter has the principal or organization in itself, as Philo had pointed out before. Um, and therefore, like, just because we don't understand exactly how the sort of cause and chain of cause and effect works in the universe, that doesn't mean that we have to, like, refer to God specifically as being the source of that chain of causality. Um, which brings us here to part 10. And at this point, the dialogue takes another fairly unexpected turn. Um, after Demia has been fairly thoroughly refuted and his a priori argument very much put out to pasture, again, Hume does not respect a priori reasoning, and this is evident in both the way that Cleanthes and Philo approach the subject, um, Demia turns his attention to another one of the extremely important evidences we have lying around as far as whether or not God exists, namely human misery. Um, like, we've talked about the problem of evil before, specifically, like, um, Aquinas confronted the problem of evil when he was arguing for the existence of God, um, Descartes is dealing with something parallel to the problem of evil when he's talking about where the origin of error comes from, um, and in both cases we get different answers to this particular problem. Aquinas gives us the solution that God, through his amazing goodness, um, produces good even out of evil. Like, the worst things that have happened in the world have been allowed to happen by God because even better things have come out of it that wouldn't have been possible without those initially evil things. Um, 
Descartes relies some, on something much closer to the tried and true free will defense. In order to um, guarantee human free will, God had to allow the possibility that humans were going to choose evil. Um, and, you know, without putting his thumb on the scale means that, like, we are naturally going to be inclined to judging incorrectly, making mistakes, um, and because our will overextends our knowledge based on, you know, the basic necessity of what, like, God does, um, and who God is for that matter, we are left with imperfect knowledge, um, but the ability to choose the wrong thing in a lot of situations. Um, Hume is coming at this from a fairly different angle, though, and he's going to come up with a very different response to either of these thinkers. Um, and I find it interesting that it is Demia who originally proposes this change in subject matter. Um, it is my opinion I own, replied Demia, that each man feels in a manner the truth of religion within his own breast, and from a consciousness of his imbecility and misery rather than from any reasoning, is led to seek protection from that being on whom he and all nature are dependent. Notice that this is very much the inversion of what we usually expect from the problem of evil. Um, rather than saying that evil is the principle that lead, leads men to forego believing in a good, benevolent God, Demia is arguing that the reason why people seek out God is not abstruse philosophical reasoning like his a priori argument um, via Aquinas before, or even Cleanthes' argument uh, from experience and from nature. He is saying that people look to God because they are miserable. Um, like, they cry out to God when they suffer, which is very much out of the line of what we usually think. But it's not wrong. Um, like, Philo and Demia both acknowledge that people will, people can endure suffering and are willing to, you know, seek out God specifically because they're in pain because they want the promise of a future that is better than the past um, because they are looking for solace for a life of pointless suffering in an afterlife of eternal bliss um, but this basically just comes out over the next several pages as just a catalog of human misery um, i mean they go at this for like a long time practically all of part 10 is devoted to them discussing the way that misery works um, and it is compelling stuff. Like, they touch on a lot of the key factors of human suffering and human unhappiness. Um, both in a sort of general way, in a more abstract way, and in a very specific and calculated way. Like, enumerating exactly what it is that caused this. Um, not only are we miserable because of, you know stuff that is outside of our control, the unknown powers which we find by experience so able to afflict and oppress us, as Demia puts it in this first paragraph. But also, um, the, as, uh, as Demia puts it further down the column, um, the miseries of life, the unhappiness of man, the general corruptions of our nature, the unsatisfactory enjoyment of pleasures, riches, honors, these phrases have become almost proverbial in all languages. Um, <clears throat> what's more, everybody agrees 
on the subject of human suffering. Like, there's one exception, we'll get to that. Um, but, like, for thousands of years, even for Philo and Demia and Cleanthes, as written by Hume in the 18th century, like, he's looking back all the way to classical Greece and Rome 2,000 years before and saying, yep, we were miserable the whole time. Um, at no point did anyone have, like, a truly blessed, happy life and wrote about how awesome and happy and blessed they were. Like, that was just not a thing. Um, there is scarce one of those innumerable writers, Philos tells us on the second column of page 956, um, from whom the sense of human misery has not, in some passage or other, extorted a complaint and confession of it. Um, everybody agrees. Except Leibniz. Um, Philo points out, there you must excuse me, said Philo, Leibniz has denied it, and is perhaps the first who ventured upon so bold and paradoxical an opinion, at least the first who made it essential to his philosophical system. Um, Leibniz is the one exception, like Leibniz famously argued that famously argued that we are living in the best of all possible worlds. Um, what's especially amusing about Leibniz is that far more famously Voltaire than skewered Leibniz in the Candide, um, where Voltaire basically had this ridiculous character who was convinced that everything was for the best and that the world was the best of all possible worlds, proceed to just get screwed over and over and over in this fairly short and hilarious book of just pointless human suffering and misery. Um, basically, like, if Leibniz is the only person in history to argue that, you know, this is the best of all possible worlds, Though technically I would suspect that Aquinas would say the same if investigated, just, you know, Hume doesn't know or care because Aquinas is very much out of vogue at this point in time. Um, if, like, if this was the one guy who said that, it is all the more ridiculous that he is the only one. Um, and that's the point that Philo and Demia make, like, it is absurd. As Demia says, by being the first, might he not have been sensible of his error? For this is the subject in which philosophers can propose to make discoveries so espe or especially in so late an age. Like, it's a little late in the day for somebody to say, you know what, life's not so bad. Like, 2,500 years later, we have somebody who's saying, you know, I think I got this. When literally everybody else has been saying how awful the human experience has been. But what's more, as much as there's all this awful shit going on, like as much as there's terrible, you know, stuff outside of our control, these unknown powers that govern men's lives, be it like disease or government or just, you know, hunger or famine or like natural disasters like hurricanes or earthquakes, like all of this. But then on top of it, you have humans themselves suck um, as Philo himself points out on page 957 he says on the contrary it is here chiefly cried Philo that the uniform and equal maxims of nature are most apparent man it is true can by combination surmount all his real enemies and become master of the whole animal creation but does he not immediately raise up to himself imaginary enemies the demons of his fancy who haunt him with superstitious terrors and blast every enjoyment of his life 
His pleasure, as he imagines, becomes in their eyes a crime. His food and repose gives them umbrage and offense. His very sleep and dreams furnish new materials to anxious fear, and even death. His refuge from every other ill presents only the dread of endless and innumerable woes. Nor does the wolf molest more the timid flock than superstition does the anxious breast of wretched mortals. In short, like... If things weren't bad enough, if, like, the natural world wasn't so contentious with us, if, um, you know, there weren't, like, natural disasters to, to plague and destroy us, at the same time, like, we conjure up things to be afraid of that aren't even real. We say that God hates when you take pleasure or when you sleep or when you, you know, relax even a little bit. And then we're worried about that too. Um, everything like death itself, which is our primary escape from all the sufferings of being alive is also something that we are terrified and, you know, really uncomfortable about. So like literally everything can be turned into misery by human perniciousness in a manner of speaking. Um, additionally, as he points out, like this also includes human competition, like in our fear and in our desire and in our greed and in our suffering, we frequently kill each other and, you know, we'll go to war with one another. Um, as he puts it, man is the greatest enemy of man. Oppression, injustice, contempt, contumely, violence, sedition, war, calumny, treachery, fraud. By these, they mutually torment each other. And they would soon dissolve that society which they had formed were it not for the dread of still greater ills which must attend their separation. Like, not only do we make up demons to be afraid of, but we also turn into demons to terrify and destroy one another. Like, human suffering is profound and deeply ingrained in who we are. Um, we cannot avoid this. Like, it is something that we invent when it is not apparent enough in our lives. Um, like maybe if we were tormented by natural disasters or, you know, like dangerous animals, then maybe we would form a society and stave off the nightmares. But as soon as we've successfully beaten them back, we will turn on each other and destroy our society. Like that's what we do. We are fundamentally, characteristically, relentlessly unsatisfied, and we will find a way to make ourselves miserable if nothing else is doing it for us. Um... And they both, like, they both stress this. Um, they both, like, emphasize this point. Um, but the one, like, as they are going about this argument, as they are stressing, like, how awful human life actually is, Cleanthes comes in and weirdly takes Leibniz's side. Um, on page 958, you can see, I can observe something like what you mentioned in some others, replied Cleanthes, but I confess I feel little or nothing of it in myself, and hope that it is not so common as you represent it. Which is weird. Like, Cleanthes is like, oh, are people really that unhappy? I never saw that. I never, I never figured that out. Like, where have you been? Like... It's the 18th century. People are still dying from horrific diseases. Syphilis is on the rise. And, like, everybody's got it. You know, at least everybody who has been fairly irresponsible about their sexuality at this point in time by 18th century standards. Um, he, where, like, there have been wars in the 18th century. The French uh, War of Acquisition on Spain was, like, only several, like, 
decades ago. Are we just not remembering this? Like, meanwhile, all of the Americans are, you know, whining about their taxation practices and talking about revolution, and, and Cleanthes is just completely oblivious to this happening? What about the wars with Scotland? What about the, like, various persecution of different religious groups in the 18th century in, in England? Like, is he unaware of this? Is he unaware of human suffering on the grand scale? Like, where have you been? Have you have you not been out of your library for, like, decades, Cleanthes? Um, and that's very much what Philo and Demia, like, approach him with. Like, are you freaking nuts? Like, what are you talking about? Um, Demia says, if you feel not human misery yourself, I congratulate you on so happy a singularity. Others, seemingly the most prosperous, have not been ashamed to vent their complaints in the most melancholy strains. And he uses the example of Charles V, the emperor uh, in the 16th century who inherited control of the entire Habsburg Empire, the entire Holy Roman Empire, and all of Spain. And basically spent his entire life fighting wars endlessly to defend his territory to the point that he had to admit that all of the greatest prosperities which he had ever enjoyed had been mixed with so many adversities that he might truly say he had never enjoyed any satisfaction or contentment. Richest dude in the world to that point, profoundly unhappy and unable to enjoy his wealth and his power. Um, that's just the way it is. Um, and like... Philo has just finished this long speech about the various things that make us miserable, that we make miserable for ourselves. Um, specifically, like, even though people say that we have no reason to complain, um, Philo argues they have no just reason, says one, these complaints proceed only from their discontented, repining, anxious disposition. And can there possibly, I reply, be a more certain foundation of misery than such a wretched temper? Um, in short, like, if in fact we are the inventors of our own misery, if things really aren't that bad and we're just whining about stuff that, you know, isn't really that bad, well, that also sucks. Like, why would we make ourselves think that we are more miserable than we actually are? Why are we inclined to, you know, self-pity when really it's undeserved and unwarranted. Like, that itself is an indication that we are congenitally unable to be happy. And what more miserable state of affairs is there? Um, what more, like, why don't we commit suicide, Philo asks in a fairly blunt way. Um, if they were really as un unhappy as they pretend, says my antagonist, why do they remain in life? Not satisfied with life, but afraid of death. This is the secret chain, say I, that holds us. We are terrified, not bribed to the continuance of our existence. Like, why do we not commit suicide? Because we're scared to die. Like, the, our situation is so bad that the only reason that we do not escape our situation is because we're scared that it might actually be worse when we die. Um, we are threatened on all sides. Last, uh, thirdly, he says that it is only a self, a false delicacy, his interlocutor insists, which a few refined spirits indulge and which has spread these complaints among the whole race of mankind. We have all been poisoned by the thoughts of a few people who are overly sensitive, in short. Um, and what is this delicacy, I ask, which you blame? Is it anything but a greater sensibility to all the pleasures and pains of life? And if the man of a delicate, refined temper by being so much more alive than the rest of the world is only so much more unhappy, what judgment must we form in general of human life? 
Like, are you really suggesting that the solution to misery is insensibility? To, like, stoically say, oh, it's not so bad, like you're some hardcore, really tough person. Like... Why should that be the metric of our of our experience? Like, if you are more sensitive, that means that you are more aware of what the world is throwing at you. That's not a bad thing. That's just, if anything, a greater indication of how much the world actually sucks. Um, and what is, or let men remain at rest, says our adversary, and they will be easy. They are willing artificers of their own misery. Um, if it's all in our minds, like we're making it up for ourselves, if we would not fight each other, if we would not go to war with each other, if we would not like make each other miserable, destroy each other's lives, then we'd all be happy. No, replies Philo. An anxious languor follows their repose, disappointment, vexation, trouble, their activity and ambition. When we sit on our hands and do nothing, we are also miserable. We work ourselves up into a frenzy. We get afraid. We become paranoid. Like, how many of you have, you know, been stuck in a waiting room for 15 minutes without your phone and felt absolutely wretched? Um, like, given time to reflect, we typically reflect on how awful things are. Um, that's not how we beat our misery. That's how we increase our misery. Idleness is only going to make it worse. Um, Philo is basically saying that we are, like I said, congenitally disposed to misery. Um, it compounds with everything that we do. Um, there is no way away from it. And yet here is Cleanthes saying, eh, I don't think it's so bad. So... They immediately tear him down, like, absolutely will not buy this. Um, they give him example after example, Charles V, Cicero, all these people who have talked about their, their miseries. But then Philo turns the conversation back to the discussion of God and makes it apparent what exactly we are talking about here. Um, as much as we are talking about all this misery, and yes, this misery is important in understanding like who God is, Philo's the one who sort of brings it back to that point. Um, so in the second column on page 958, right about halfway down, he says, Is it possible, Cleanthes, that after all these reflections and infinitely more which might be suggested, you can still persevere in your anthropomorphism and assert the moral attributes of the deity, his justice, benevolence, mercy, and rectitude, to be of the same nature with these virtues in human creatures? His power, we allow, is infinite. Whatever he wills is executed, but neither man nor any other animal is happy. Therefore, he does not will their happiness." His wisdom is infinite. He is never mistaken in choosing the means to any end, but the course of nature tends not to human or animal felicity, therefore it is not established for that purpose. Through the whole compass of human knowledge there are no inferences more certain and infallible than these. In what respect, then, do his benevolence and mercy resemble the benevolence and mercy of men? Epicurus's old questions are yet unanswered. Is he willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then is he malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? And this you should absolutely recognize as a very early form of the problem of evil. Um, if God is so powerful as to be able to do whatever he wants and so good as to want evil or to want good, then why is evil in the world? One of these principles must be an error. Like, either evil isn't as bad as we say, as Cleanthes is arguing, 
or God does not want to cause good, or God is unable to bring about good. Um, and notice the way that Philo expresses this. Um, how do you assert the moral attributes of the deity? We are still talking about the nature of God here. Um, and while Demia has been emphasizing that like people come to God not through arguments, but from their suffering, what Demia doesn't seem to notice is that now we're talking about God. We are, in fact, addressing God, but our discussion of misery has turned from look how people look to God in their suffering to what does this suffering say about God? Um, and the argument is not between, like, Demia and Cleanthes anymore. It is now between Cleanthes and Philo. Um, Cleanthes is arguing that the world is good and therefore it is evidence that God is good. And Philo is arguing that the world sucks, and it is therefore evidence that God sucks. Like, he's not terribly clear about it here, but he will make it more clear as we go. Um, and while Demia does participate, like, he's kind of unaware of exactly the turn that this conversation has taken. Um, so notice on page 959, like after Philo presents the Epicurean argument, this problem of evil, um, Cleanthes does try and fight back. And have you at last, said Cleanthes, smiling, betrayed your intentions, Philo? Your long agreement with Demia did indeed a little surprise me, but I find you were all the while erecting a concealed battery against me. And I must confess that you have now fallen upon a subject worthy of your noble spirit of opposition and controversy. If you can make out the present point and prove mankind to be unhappy or corrupted, there is an end at once of all religion. For to what purpose establish the natural attributes of the deity while the moral are still doubtful and uncertain? See, up until now, we've been talking about the natural attributes of the deity. What are God's powers, in short? Um, we said that God was intelligent. That was what Cleanthes was arguing when he was talking about the comparison to the machine. World is like a machine. Machines require intelligence to make. Therefore, the world required intelligence to make or something close to it. Um, when Demia is using his Thomist argument, saying that, like, God created the universe, he is saying that God is, in fact, responsible for the act of creation. Um, and yet Philo also shoots this down. Um, so now, here we are, and we're talking not about the powers of the deity, but the morality of the deity. Is God good, in short? Um, and Cleanthes has picked up on the fact that Philo doesn't believe that God is good. Um, the question that Philo asked, how do you assert the moral attributes of the deity when given the, pers the, under the like, universe of misery and suffering that we see, Cleanthes is arguing it's not so bad, maybe not because he actually does not understand what suffering is, but because he is legitimately and deliberately taking the only rational position he is permitted at this point, if he is going to still believe in a good God. Um, Cleanthes anticipates that the only way to argue for God's goodness is to deny the existence of evil altogether. The problem of evil is so powerful that you have to reject one of the three principles. Either God is impotent, he is not omnipotent, um, and therefore can't stop evil. Um, he is 
not good at all and doesn't want to stop evil, as Philo seems to suggest, or as Cleanthes suggests, evil is just an imaginary thing. It's not something that exists, um, much like arguably Aquinas would have done when he argued that um, all evil things produce even greater good things. Um, so notice that Cleanthes himself stresses this in, on page 959 in the second column. Um, these arbitrary suppositions can never be admitted contrary to matter of fact, visible and uncontroverted. Whence can any cause be known from its known effects? That's what we've been arguing this whole time. All of the, um, all of the empiricists, namely Philo and, Cl and Cleanthes, have been arguing against Demia that the only way that we can know God is through the stuff that God has done. And if the stuff that God has done is evil, then we have to conclude that God is evil. So we have to assume that the world is good and therefore that God is good as a result. Um, whence can any hypothesis be proved but from the apparent phenomena? To establish one hypothesis upon another is building entirely in the air, and the utmost we ever attain by these conjectures and fictions is to ascertain the bare possibility of our opinion, but never can we upon such terms establish its reality. This is what Demia is doing. Um, building entirely in the air, establishing hypothesis on hypothesis, and establishing only the possibility, not the reality, of the things that he's talking about. So Cleanthes goes on, the only method of supporting divine benevolence, and it is what I willingly embrace, is to deny absolutely the misery and wickedness of man. Your representations are exaggerated, your melancholy views most mostly fictitious, your inferences contrary to fact and experience. Health is more common than sickness, pleasure than pain, happiness than misery, and for one vexation which we meet with, we attain upon computation a hundred enjoyments. Cleanthes is taking the hard line on this one. He is saying, look, yeah, bad stuff happens, but for every bad thing, we have a hundred good things, and you're just blowing the bad things out of proportion. Um, but Philo is ready. He is already prepared. Admitting your position, replied Philo, which yet is extremely doubtful, you must at the same time allow that if pain be less frequent than pleasure, it is infinitely more violent and durable. One hour of it is often able to outweigh a day, a week, a month of our common insipid enjoyments. And how many days, weeks, and months are passed by several in, most, in the most acute torments? Pleasure, scarcely in one instance, is ab ever able to reach ecstasy and rapture, and in no one instance can it continue for any time at its highest pitch and altitude. The spirits evaporate, the nerves relax, the fabric is disordered, and the enjoyment quickly degenerates into fatigue and uneasiness. But pain often, good God, how often, rises to torture and agony, and the longer it continues, it becomes still more genuine ag agony and torture. Patience is exhausted, courage languishes, melancholy seizes us, and nothing terminates our misery but the removal of its cause, or another event which is the sole cure of all evil, death, but which from our natural folly we regard with still greater horror and consternation. But not to insist upon these topics, continued Philo, though most obvious, certain, and important, I must use the freedom to admonish you, Cleanthes, that you have put the contrary controversy upon a most dangerous issue and are unawares introducing a total skepticism into the most essential articles of natural and revealed theology what no method of fixing a just foundation for religion unless we allow the happiness of human life and maintain a continued existence even in this world with all our present pains infirmities vexations and follies to be eligible and desirable but this is contrary to everyone's feeling and experience it is contrary to an authority so established as nothing can subvert what philo is arguing here 
is first that pain, no matter whether it's less or more frequent, always outweighs pleasure. Like pleasure, sure, you may have one really good day. You may feel ecstasy at any one moment. You might feel euphoria, but it never lasts. It's always gone in an instant. Um, like no matter how excited you are about anything, your excitement will flag. But if you're suffering, if you are in pain, it'll just go on and go on and go on and it will never go away until the cause of it is gone or you are dead. Think of it this way, like, I don't care how freaking happy you are, if you've got a bad toothache, like, you could just be presented with gifts and honors and, like, the best stuff in, in the world will happen to you and you will not be able to enjoy it. Um, a minor pain or discomfort or sickness or, like, anything like that will absolutely just overshadow whatever happiness you might have. You only need one pain for a little while and it'll ruin your whole day. Um, that's just the way it goes. Um, and what's more, Philo stresses that if Cleanthes is in fact going to take his position and argue that, eh, it's not so bad, what Cleanthes is actually doing is denying the reality of experience on a way that Philo would never do. Remember, as we stressed in the last couple lectures, Philo and Hume considered themselves skeptics. And skepticism is one of the things that we have been talking about consistently through this dialogue. What is good skepticism? When Cleanthes originally accused Philo of being a skeptic, he was thinking Cartesian skepticism. We doubt the senses. But Philo very much rejects that. The senses, is, the senses are all that we have, is what is the position that both Philo and Hume are taking here. Um, for Cleanthes to then deny experience, like not just experience, but the repeated experience of literally everyone, with the exception of Cleanthes and Leibniz, um, rejecting this experience that is so entrenched, so well repeated, so well documented, so omnipresent to all human life, for Cleanthes to reject and deny this is basically for Cleanthes to reject and deny the most basic truth of human life. To say that our senses are so unreliable that we cannot even determine for ourselves what is good and evil. And if that's the case, then we are fucked. Like, there is literally nothing to base our knowledge on. The knowledge of human suffering is so fundamental to who we are, so basic, so simple, so straightforward, that if Cleanthes is really going to reject it, he is basically making a philosophical argument that we cannot be trusted to wipe our own ass. Like, we cannot basically decide anything for ourselves. Um, and Philo calls him out on this. This is contrary to everyone's feeling and experience. It is contrary to an authority so established as nothing can subvert. Misery is perhaps the single most likely, single most powerful, single most logical and reliable and real experience that we have. If you're going to deny it, well, then now we've got nothing to go on. Like, what more do we know about the world than that it sucks? Um, as the old saying goes, the only things to count on in this world are death and taxes. Like, suffering is fundamental, basic. You reject it, and now we have no idea what we're doing, what we're, what we're talking about. Like, there is literally no common ground here if Cleanthes is going to push this argument forward. Um, now, Cleanthes does 
modify this a little bit. At the start of part 11, he backs off a little bit and stresses that, um, I scruple not to allow that I have been apt to suspect the frequent repetition of the word infinite, which we meet within all theological writers to savor more of panegyric than of philosophy, and that any purposes of reasoning and even of religion would be better served were we to rest contented with more accurate and more moderate expressions. Cleanthes is arguing, in short, that, like, the problem here isn't necessarily that, like, the world is good or bad, but that we assume that God is infinitely good or infinitely powerful. Um, he wants to modify it. Um, the terms admirable, excellent, superlatively great, wise, and holy, these sufficiently fill the imaginations of men, and anything beyond, besides that it leads into absurdities, has no influence on the affect, affections or sentiments. Um, in short, Cleanthes is going back to his analogical language. If we, if we abandon all human analogy, as seems your intention, Demia, I am afraid we abandon all religion and retain no conception of the great object of our adoration. If we preserve human anal analogy, we must forever find it impossible to reconcile any mixture of evil in the universe with infinite attributes. Much less can we ever prove the latter from the former. Cleanthes is saying, you know, the problem here isn't necessarily with good or evil. The problem is with the way that we characterize God. If we keep insisting on him as being infinite, uh, omnipotent, omniscient, etc., these all-powerful, all-good um, sort of denominations, then yeah, we're going to run into trouble when it comes to this issue of evil. Like, the problem of evil is at its most potent when we say things like omnipotent and omnibenevolent without any qualification. Um, supposing the author of nature to be finitely perfect, though far exceeding mankind, a satisfactory account may then be given of natural and moral evil, and every untoward phenomenon be explained and adjusted. Um, Cleanthes has backed off of his original position that, like, there is no evil in the world, because, again, Philo has stressed, if we follow that out to its logical conclusion, we end up unable to do philosophy. And now he's instead taking the position that since God is unknowable, um, we can't be sure that he is infinite. He is appealing to Demia here. Um, he is trying to get Demia on his side so they can both fight the sort of inevitable progress of Philo's argument. Um, but Demia isn't going to buy it, because remember, Demia has been emphasizing God's like impossible mysteriousness as a function of biblical teaching, as a function of faith and a priori reasoning. To argue that God is anything less than, like, perfect is to fly in the face of what Demia has been saying this whole time. Um, so Philo instead goes on the offensive. Um, he makes yet another argument, stressing that, like, and while we could, in fact, you know, take what Cleanthes is saying and see that God is in some way, you know, good but not perfectly good, at the same time, like... That's only a conclusion that we can have if we have this idea of God as this good being beforehand. Um, the example he uses is of an apartment, and a badly designed one at that. Um, so on the first full paragraph on page 961, he says, Did I show you a house or palace where there was not one apartment convenient or agreeable, where the windows, doors, fires, passages, stairs, and the whole economy of the building were the source of noise, confusion, fatigue, darkness, and the extremes of heat and cold? You would certainly blame the contrivance without any further examination. Um, 
in short, like, if you're living in a really uncomfortable house, like, if all the stuff is in the wrong places and it's dark and it's miserable and, like, the whole place is just confusing to, to navigate, you would assume that the problem is with the architect. Like, the architect did a bad job. Likewise, if you live in a world where there's all this discomfort and all this suffering and all this misery, you blame the creator of the world for all of those things. Um... And Philo goes on, the architect would in vain display his subtlety and prove to you that if this door or that window were altered, greater ills would ensue. What he says may be strictly true. The alteration of one particular while the other parts of the building remain may only augment the inconveniences. But still you would assert in general that if the architect had had skill and good intentions, he might have formed such a plan of the whole and might have adjusted the parts in such a manner as would have remedied all or most of these inconveniences. When you were looking at the world and saying, like, you know, things suck because of tornadoes. Why don't we just get rid of the tornadoes? Then, yes, you have scientists coming out of the woodwork to say, well, if we got rid of tornadoes, then this would happen, and this would happen, and this would happen, and, and then it would, like, completely destroy the way that weather works. And therefore, you know, tornadoes are a necessary evil for all of the other good things that we enjoy. And these arguments are fairly solid. Um, like, and this is how most philosophers defend God against the charge of evil. Well, you know, in order to give us free will, God has to allow for the possibility of us doing bad things. But what Philo is stressing here is, you know, you can make those sort of exceptional cases. The architect can say, you know, you move that fireplace and worse things happen. But at the end of the day, you're still sitting there thinking, you know, maybe you could have designed a better house from the ground up. Like, sure, these individual problems may con like con or have problems with other existing issues in the design. But maybe if you would like been a better architect, if you had been a better god, you could have designed a world that fit together better, um, that didn't have all of these things sort of like blocking each other out. His ignorance, or even your own ignorance of such a plan, will never convince you of the impossibility of it. If you find any inconveniences and deformities in the building, you will always, without entering into any detail, condemn the architect. Um, what Philo is saying is that the only reason that we are having this conversation, the only reason that we aren't in absolute agreement that the world sucks and that the guy who made it must also suck, is the fact that we have this pre-existing notion of a good and benevolent God. If, in fact, we are doing what we propose to do, if, we, in fact, we are trying to argue about the nature of God from the experience of the world that we have, from the experience of his effects, we will have no option but to argue that God sucks at his job. Uh, that the world is a lousy, terrible place and that we are all suffering in it, um, regardless of the individual particulars that we run into, the specific organization of any one thing contributing to the, you know, badness of the whole or the goodness of the whole. Yeah, you can argue, remove that and this becomes worse. But at the end of the day, couldn't you have figured out something better, something that would cause this all to fit together better? Um, and at the end of the day, he even gives us a list. Like, there are four things that Philo points out that all, all you would need to do is change one of them and everything else would fit together so much better. Uh, life would be so much more enjoyable and more endurable. First, as he says on page 962, um, the first circumstance which introduces evil is that contrivance or economy of the animal creation by which pains as well as pleasures are employed to excite all creatures to action and make them vigilant in the great work of self-preservation. Um, in short, what he's saying is, why do we have pain? Like, why do we need it? Um, 
he stresses, you know, we are willing to pursue pleasure for its own purposes. Like we don't need any more motivation than that. So all you would need to do is instead make pleasure less pleasurable if we were doing something wrong. Like if we are sick, then we feel less pleasure than we would normally. Or if we were hurt, we would feel less pleasure than we would normally. We don't need pain to do it. Like pain is unnecessary and therefore it is just like something that is bound to go wrong in the human body and therefore we don't need it. Like it, it's, it's unnecessarily dangerous to have pain at all. Um, second, at the bottom of the first column on page 962, um, but a capacity of pain would not alone produce pain were it not for the second circumstance, namely the conducting of the world by general laws. And this seems no wise necessary to a very perfect being. Um, the second principle he's saying is why do we need general laws at all? Like, why don't we just have God intervening in human affairs on a regular basis? Like, why do we have the law of gravity? Why do we have, you know, the, the law of, like, um, motion? Why are any of these physical laws guaranteed? If God was willing to just, like, do whatever he wanted whenever he wanted to, then presumably he could make everyone happy without relying on, you know, systems and rules to do the job for him. In short, might not the deity exterminate all ill wherever it were to be found and produce all good without any preparation or long progress of causes and effects? Um, what's more, he stresses that there are still in the world lots of things that are uncertain, and yet God frequently does not intervene in places where it would be really logical to do so. Um, there are all of these accidents that, as he says, he could turn to the good of mankind. Um, there are plenty of situations, like even historical examples, that he sort of picks out, and he's like, well, why didn't God do something here? Why, why didn't God, like send one big wave to take Caesar and his treasure to the bottom of the ocean and preserve the Roman Republic? Why didn't he just change Caligula's brain just a little bit and then convert him into a good and noble emperor? Um, like, why does God let bad people win? Bad, why does he let God, or why does God let bad people, you know, enjoy good luck um, when... Obviously, that would be a great time to intervene and cause a better thing to happen. Um, a fleet whose purposes were salutary to society might always meet with a fair wind. Good princes enjoy sound health and long life. Persons born to power and authority be framed with good tempers and virtuous dispositions. A few such events as these, regularly and wisely conducted, would change the face of the world, and yet would no more seem to disturb the course of nature or confound human conduct than the present economy of things, where the causes are secret and variable and compounded. Philo's saying, like, if Hitler had died in infancy, if Hitler had been run over by a car, the world would be a way better place. So why didn't God do that? Um, like, no one would have noticed. No one would have cared. Tons of people get run over by cars all the time, and nobody gives a shit. Um, so maybe, you know, strangling a tyrant in the cradle wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. Um, so, you know, again, like, there might be reasons to to argue for them but it doesn't change the fact that overwhelmingly overall like we still have this question you can't prove it you can't prove that it was better to let hitler survive or trajan or rather or caligula or caesar etc etc but even if you grant those two those first two even if you give us pain and even give us general laws and god like not interfering in human affairs 
The third circumstance is the great frugality with which all powers and faculties are distributed to every particular being at the top of page 963. Um, as he stresses, as far as history or tradition reaches, there appears not to be any single species which has yet been extinguished in the universe, which he's wrong, like there have been extinction events, looking at you, the dinosaurs. Every animal has the requisite endowments, but these endowments are bestowed with so scrupulous an economy that any considerable diminution must entirely destroy the creature. That one he's kind of on, onto something. Um, we have a balance of our powers. Humans are not especially strong or have sharp claws or like sharp teeth. We are not especially fast. Like we have our intelligence and that's literally all we've got going for us. Um, as he puts it, nature seems to have formed an exact calculation of the necessities of her creatures and, like a rigid master, has afforded them little more powers or endowments than what are strictly sufficient to supply those necessities. Every species on Earth barely survives, in short. Um, we are given only the bare minimum of what we need to survive, and this isn't necessary. Um, as he stresses in the next paragraph on the second column of 963, I am contented to take an increase in one single power or faculty of his soul, meaning human souls. Let him be endowed with a greater propensity to industry and labor, or a more vigorous spring and activity of mind, a more constant bent to business and application. Let the whole species possess naturally an equal diligence with which that with that which many individuals are able to obtain by habit and reflection and the most beneficial consequences without any allay of ill is the immediate and necessary result of this endowment if we all just wanted to work a little harder in short if we all weren't so lazy then we could totally you know make the world a much better place but because we are inclined to idleness we now suffer unnecessarily like pointlessly if we enjoyed working harder, that's literally all we would need to stop so many human evils, and yet we do not have that. Yet we still persist in our idleness and prefer not to work hard when it is appropriate. Um, and, you know, like, this is an easy thing to change. Why would this prevent the universe from functioning properly? Um, why is this the spring on which everything hinges? Um, but that's kind of his next point. The fourth circumstance whence arises the misery and ill of the universe is the inaccurate workmanship of all the springs and principles of the great machine of nature. It must be acknowledged that there are few parts of the universe which seem not to serve some purpose and whose removal would not produce a visible defect and disorder in the whole. The parts hang all together, nor can one be touched without affecting the rest in a greater or less degree. But at the same time, it must be observed that none of these parts or principles, however useful, are so accurately adjusted as to keep precisely within those bounds in which their utility consists but they are all of them apt on every occasion to run into the one extreme or the other rain is a good thing for crops but when there's too much of it it drowns them out and they all die and when there's too little of it then that then they all burn out and die and this happens all the time famines are a thing droughts are a thing floods are a thing like why is that allowed to happen why can't you know rain stay in the more moderate and productive boundaries likewise human beings 
they love and they are they get angry and for the most part these passions are useful in certain situations when you are angry at injustice you fight against injustice when you fall in love with a beautiful person then that is a good thing for the procreation of the species but then you fall in love with the wrong person and then you destroy empires trying to get them or you become so angry that you kill someone and now you're destructive rather than productive why let that happen why allow these secret cogs and flywheels of nature to occasionally go so far awry? Like, why can't it all be a little bit better calibrated, in short? And what Hume is emphasizing is not all four of these need to change, but any one of them changed would make everything better for everyone. And to what cause? Like, why do we have it in just this way? Why doesn't nature give us a more balanced set of, like, cogs and flywheels that don't go so easily awry why do we have like human laziness when you know we could be given just a little bit more industry and therefore make the world a better place um why do we have like just the minimum amount of you know power over our over our own lives um why do we have only what we what we have and not like just a little bit better constitution um why do we have pain at all like instead of just a cessation of pleasure and why do we have these laws that bind us and not like god intervening when it is appropriate directly and as soon as it is necessary like any of that any of that and you would fix it or at least make it a whole lot better than it is but god doesn't and the conclusion that philo comes to which he admits, like, making a decision on this is presumptuous, he says on, in the second column on 964. Um, it, the decision seems too presumptuous for creatures so blind and ignorant. Let us be more modest in our conclusions. Let us allow that if the goodness of the deity, I mean a goodness like the human, could be established on any tolerable reasons a priori, these phenomena, however untoward, would not be sufficient to subvert that principle, but might easily in some unknown manner be reconcilable to it. What Hume is saying is, like, this is not necessarily a complete refutation of God's existence. Like, there's no reason to think that, you know, God has to change these four things. Maybe there is an argument to be made. Like with the architect building his crappy house, like, he, you can explain away all of these problems if you were previously assured of the goodness of the person who made it. But we aren't. Like, we don't have some good, solid, a priori argument that convinces everybody. Like, Demia tried to present his good a priori argument a la Aquinas, and everybody shot it down. Nobody bought it. Like, nobody cares. Um, in this very classroom, chances are you've heard several a priori arguments for the existence of God and not been convinced by any one of them if you weren't already believing in God to begin with. So we don't have the a priori argument, and that means that the only reason that we can under or the only reason that we can understand the attributes of God are by looking at his effects, what he does. And with that in mind, Philo concludes that we cannot get to God's goodness from here. Like there's way too much evidence of things sucking for us to conclude that a God who created this world is good, given no other evidence, no other argument. 
Um, as he says, I am skeptic enough to allow that the bad appearances, notwithstanding all my reasonings, may be compatible with such attributes as you suppose, but surely they can never prove these attributes. Such a conclusion cannot result from skepticism, but must arise from the phenomena and from our con confidence in the reasonings which we deduce from these phenomena. Look round this universe, one immense profusion of beings, animated and organized, sensible and active. You admire this prodigious variety and fecundity, but inspect a little more narrowly these living existence the only beings worth regarding. How hostile and destructive to each other. How insufficient all of them for their own happiness. How contemptible or odious to the spectator. The whole presents nothing but the idea of a blind nature impregnated by a great vivifying principle and pouring forth from her lap without discernment or parental care her maimed and abortive children. If we look at the world and try to get to what God is like by looking at the people that you know, God has supposedly brought forth, the only conclusion we can come to is that God doesn't give a shit about us. That we have just been chucked into this world screaming, suffering, miserable, in pain, maimed and abortive. And what kind of God would do that? Like, ultimately, Philo concludes in this middle of the first column on page 965, there are may four hypotheses be framed concerning the first causes of the universe. That they are endowed with perfect goodness, that they have perfect malice, that they are opposite and have both goodness and malice, or that they have neither goodness nor malice. In short, God is either all good, or God is all bad, or God is multiple. Like, there is a good god and a bad god that's what he's talking about earlier when he's talking about manichaeanism because manichaeism like argues that there's a good god and there's a bad god and they're fighting against each other all the time and then there's the fourth one that they are that god if god exists d isn't good or bad and we have to rule out the good the good god because there's too much evil around to argue that god is all good we can also rule out that God is just evil because there's goodness out there. So, like, if there's any goodness at all, then that would make it obvious that, like, the God is not, you know, there's not some omnipotent evil God out there just doing evil. Um, but he also rules out the possibility of, like, the opposites, that there are good and bad gods. Um... Mixed phenomena can never prove the two former unmixed principles, and the uniformity and steadiness of general laws seems to oppose the third. Like, the fact is, you know, stuff does seem to be... Stuff in the world does seem to fit together. The law of gravity is consistent. The law of motion is consistent. The law of, like, um, thermodynamics is consistent. Um, this would imply that if there is some sort of, like, governing force in the universe, it is single-minded in some way. So probably not, like, a good and evil god fighting each other and trying to, like, bend the laws of the universe to their will. But that means that the conclusion that Philo comes to is that God is neither good nor evil. Um, as he puts it, um... What I have said concerning natural evil will apply to moral with little or no variation, and we have no more reason to infer that the rectitude of the supreme being resembles human rectitude than that his benevolence resembles the human. Nay, it will be thought that we have still greater cause to exclude from him moral sentiments, such as we feel them, since moral evil in the opinion of many is much more predominant above moral good than natural evil above natural good. 
Um, but even though this should not be allowed, and though the virtue which is in mankind should be acknowledged much superior to the vice, yet so long as there is any vice at all in the universe, it will very much puzzle you anthropomorphites how to account for it. You must assign a cause for it without having recourse to the first cause, but as every effect must have a cause, and that cause another, you must either carry on the progression in infinitum or rest on that original principle who is the ultimate cause of all things. In short, Philo is basically saying, like, I worship Cthulhu. Like, Cthulhu does not give a shit about human beings. He is the elder god, he sleeps in the deep seas, and we are but, like, ants beneath his feet. The entire human civilization is nothing to Cthulhu, who is been sleeping for as long as we have been civilized and who like is completely indifferent to the machinations of human beings there is no morality in the gods nothing that we can recognize anyway um and the gods might just as easily snuff us out of existence as love us or hate us they just don't give a shit is what Hume is arguing here or at least what philo is arguing here um, and this is where Demia finally figures it out. Hold, hold, cries Demia. Whither does your imagination hurry you? I joined an alliance with you in order to prove the incomprehensible nature of the divine being and refute the principles of Cleanthes, who would measure everything by human rule and standard. But I now find you running into all the topics of the greatest libertines and infidels and betraying that holy cause which you seemingly espoused. Are you secretly then a more dangerous enemy than Cleanthes himself? And Cleanthes is like, seriously, now you're figuring it out? And are you so late in perceiving it? Believe me, Demia, your friend Philo from the beginning has been amusing himself at both our expense. And it must be confessed that the injudicious reasoning of our vulgar theology has given him but too just a handle of ridicule. Philo looked like he was arguing for the incomprehensibility of the deity, and he was. Only it is so incomprehensible. God is so beyond human knowledge that we cannot even say that God is good. That God's goodness and badness, whatever that may be, is so alien to human experience that it is not comparable. It is not even analogical in the Thomist sense. Demia was holding out on a God who is, whose goodness is incomprehensible, a God whose power is incomprehensible, a God whose mind is incomprehensible. And insofar as he agreed that it was incomprehensible, he agreed that it was, he agreed with Philo, who believed that we could not get there from here. But when finally Philo turns out to say that the normal, normally attributed attributes of God, like his goodness and wisdom, are incomprehensible, are not, in fact, goodness and wisdom by our normal standards, Demia loses it. Like, Demia believes what the Bible says, that God is good. When Philo says, eh, there's no evidence of God being good, look around, things suck, I guess God doesn't give a shit about us, Demia's like, whoa, what, what, what did you say? Like, how did we come to this conclusion? And it's here that Demia bails. Like, Right after part 11, like there's one more paragraph after Cleanthes explains that like Philo has turned on them and that was his plan all along. Now Demia takes off and part 12 will happen without Demia in tow. Um, but this is the conclusion that Philo ultimately comes to. Like this is what Philo has been arguing all along. This is the only logical skeptical position. Um, just as he was arguing that God is not a mind because the analogy between the world and the machine is so weak, thus we must also make the analogy between God's character and human goodness very weak as well. So weak as to be impotent, 
like not valuable. Um, God is unknowable, but really unknowable. Unknowable in the sense that like the you know infinite reaches of space are unknowable. Unknowable like Cthulhu is unknowable. He does not have human emotions, and that means that he does not have human morality either. What Philo is stressing here is God is so unknowable that calling him good is itself a fallacy. Um, it is the product of faulty analogical reasoning, a similarity so weak that it barely registers in any philosophical argument. And Demia can't buy this, so he takes off. But what is especially interesting, not so much from the argument's perspective, but from sort of trying to figure out the conclusion's perspective, is that in part 12, Philo backpedals a lot. Um, like, he totally gives Cleanthes both um, that God does in fact exist, has mind in some intelligent sense or some sense com comparable to intelligence, and is good in some sense comparable to human goodness. Like, he backpedals on all of this. Um, he, like, Cleanthes stresses that, you know, on page 967, the bottom of the first uh, column, um, I shall further add to what you have so well urged that one great advantage of the principle of theism is that it is the only system of cosmogony which can be rendered intelligible and complete, and yet can throughout preserve a strong analogy to what we see every day and experience in the world. The comparison of the universe to a machine of human contrivance is so obvious and natural, and is justified by so many instances of order and design in nature, that it must immediately strike all unprejudiced apprehensions and procure universal approbation. And Philo agrees, like, yep, world is very much like a machine. Like, you had it right all along. I was mostly just arguing to be a skeptic and be a punk and to irritate the crap out of Demia. Um, he stresses in the very next paragraph that the works of nature bear a great analogy to the productions of art is evident. Um, so, you know, at the end of the day, if we are not contented with calling the first and supreme cause a god or deity, but desire to vary the expression, what can we call him but mind or thought to which he is justly supposed to bear a considerable resemblance? Philo basically just gives Cleanthes the argument. He is not actually interested in arguing that point. Um, and he has stressed elsewhere, like I believe in part 12, um, that it, it took him all of his effort, all of his skeptical inventiveness to refute the argument that God was intelligent, that God, that the world was like a machine. All that stuff that we talked about in parts five and six and um, all those like crazy examples that Philo came up with of the world being like a vegetable or like the spider spinning a web, um, the possibility of there being some like really old God who's crappy at his job. Like all of this is Philo working on all engines, like trying really hard to overcome this otherwise fairly strong argument. Um, but he also stresses that the moral argument is like a slam dunk for the skeptic. Um, like, as much as, you know, it's easy to argue that God is intelligence just by looking at the way that the world fits together and works together in an intelligent, rationally ordered, orderly way, um, it is virtually impossible for the theist to defend God's goodness, given how much suffering is on display. Um, it is way easier to, argue, to 
argue against God from the perspective of morality, using the problem of evil, um, and contend that God is not good in any real sense, um, than to argue that God is not intelligent, that the like the obviousness of the world's well-designedness is way more obvious than the obviousness of God's apparent goodness. Um, and you should keep that in mind. Like the problem of evil, Hume's solution to it is basically to say God is either not good or not powerful. Um, Cleanthes lands on the argument that God is not all powerful. Like he can't fix the badness in the world for whatever reason. Philo argues the opposite, that God is just not good. Um, that he that his morality, even if he has it, is so alien to human beings that like it's incomprehensible and therefore meaningless. Um, but again, that's that section. What I want to stress here in part 12 um, is first that why does Philo back off? Like, in fact, Philo has like Philo reveals that he has a bone to pick, not with Cleanthes and his sort of philosophical argument about God, but rather he is really upset with the superstitious people, um, the dogmatists like Demia, the people who argue for the existence of God without taking a philosophical bent, um, what he calls the superstitious. Um, and like Philo has a, what is frankly a screed um, against these sorts of people. Um, notice on page 970, the second, second full paragraph and the second column, is there any maxim in politics more certain and infallible than that both the number and authority of priests should be confined within very narrow limits, and that the civil magistrate ought forever to keep his fasces and axes, uh, his symbols of like secular authority, from such dangerous hands? Um, but if the spirit of popular religion were so salutary to society, a contrary maxim ought to prevail. The greater number of priests and their greater authority and riches will always augment the religious spirit. And though the priests have the guidance of this spirit, why may we not expect a superior sanctity of life and greater benevolence and moderation from persons who are set apart from religion, who are continually inculcating it upon others, and who must themselves imbibe a greater share of it? Um, whence comes it then that, in fact, the utmost a wise magistrate can propose with regard to popular religions is, as far as possible, to make a saving game of it, and to prevent their pernicious consequences with regard to society? Every expedient which he tries for so humble a purpose is surrounded with inconveniences. If he admits only one religion among his subjects, he must sacrifice to an uncertain prospect of tranquility every consideration of public liberty, science, reason, industry, and even his own independence. If he gives indulgence to several sects, which is the wiser maxim, he must preserve a very philosophical indifference to all of them, and carefully restrain the pretensions of the prevailing sect. Otherwise, he can expect nothing but endless disputes, quarrels, factions, persecutions, and civil commotions." True religion for Philo is philosophical, it is moral, it is the aiming towards an afterlife that is better than the current life by behaving well and acting well. And when religion is doing that specific thing, that's when people are the best improved. But that doesn't mean giving religion civil power. In fact, just the opposite. What Philo is, is remarking upon here is that if you are in fact ruling a nation or ruling a city, the best thing you can do is keep religion in check. Because if there are all of if there's only one dominant religion, it will quash and like stifle out 
all free thinking, all scientific inquiry, all attempts at human progress. But if there are multiple religions, then you've got to keep the strongest of them down or they are going to beat up all the other religions. Um, as we frequently see Christianity getting upset and like bemoaning and antagonizing other faiths and atheism in our world today. Um, religion is supposed to be a good thing. And when practiced correctly, it is a good thing. Um, but that the difference for Philo is that that's philosophical religion, religion informed and sort of like guided by philosophy and not just let to run its course. Um, but Cleanthes pushes back against this. Take care, Philo, replied Cleanthes. Take care. Push not matters too far. Allow not your zeal against false religion to undermine your veneration for the true. Forfeit not this principle, the chief, the only great comfort in life, and our principal support amidst all the attacks of adverse fortune. The most agreeable reflection which it is possible for human imagination to suggest is that of genuine theanism, which represents us as the workmanship of a being perfectly good, wise, and powerful, who created us for happiness and who having implanted in us immeasurable desires of good will prolong our existence to all eternity and will transfer us into an infinite variety of scenes in order to satisfy those desires and render our felicity complete and durable next to such a being himself if comparison be allowed the happiest lot which we can imagine is that of being under his guardianship and protection and philo agrees to this the trouble is philo sees that religion is frequently hypocritical that religion seizes power and fails to acknowledge its own principles. Um, that's the issue that Philo takes, and he sees the dogmatists like Demia, the people who do not question or interrogate their own faith, as being the single greatest perpetrators of these injustices within religion, and are in fact perverting what religion is supposed to do. But that brings up an important question, namely, where does Hume sit on this? Like for 11 parts, we had Philo literally tearing apart Demia and Cleanthes for their, you know, like naive religious assumptions about the world, tearing down every argument that presented God as either good or intelligent or wise. All of the traditional understandings of who God is, Philo systematically rejected and tore out and replaced it with ideas that like we can't know anything about God, not just how awesome he is, but also whether he is awesome at all and not just like indifferent or even evil. Um, so where does Hume stand? Like, is Philo in fact speaking for Hume or not? And it is further complicated because on page 973, the very last paragraph, we have our narrator, Pamphilus, interjecting again, saying, Cleanthes and Philo pursued not this conversation much further, and as nothing ever make great, made greater impression on me than all the reasonings of that day, so I confess that, upon a serious review of the whole, I cannot but think that Philo's principles are more probable than Demia's, but that those of Cleanthes approach still nearer to the truth. Like, at the end of the day, at the end of this dialogue, Hume isn't saying, like, Philo is awesome, and everything he said is awesome, and you should totally pay attention to him because he's a skeptic and an empiricist and a philosophical Christian, and, like, that's the best thing that you can be. Instead, he's saying, nah, Cleanthes is probably right. And... Like, at this point, you would be totally warranted in saying, well, where is Hume on this? And in other, dot, in other works of his, it's, it's very much suggested that Hume is what I would call a hard agnostic. He believes that there literally is no evidence out there, one way or the other, to demonstrate the existence, much less the goodness or, like, um, uh, intelligence of God. 
Like, our experience is way too limited to be able to extrapolate into matters that are that impressive. We cannot get to an infinite being from a finite world. We cannot hypothesize the creation of the universe from the rules that are already in place. Like, that's just not how knowledge works. That's not how experience works. That's not how science works. We can't get there from here. Like, not just an agnostic in the sense of maybe God exists, maybe God doesn't exist. Who knows? Hume is saying literally there is no way to know. There is no possible evidence that you can present to me that will argue convincingly for God's existence. He's not an atheist. There is also no possibility of evidence that God doesn't exist. The fact is human knowledge, human awareness is so limited that we can't get to either conclusion. Whether God exists or doesn't is something that will always and forever remain a question mark, according to Hume. But here, he stresses that Cleanthes is probably right that the evidence is in his favor, what evidence there is. What's more, you know, you probably would read this and be like, well, what did he say after this? Like, what did he say in interviews? If, did people ask him questions? Like, did he in fact decide to be a hard agnostic the way that he is in his other works? Or is he in fact a theist? Does he believe in God or not? Does he believe in a good, benevolent God the way that Cleanthes thinks? Or does he believe that this, you know, idea of God is so far from our experience that we can't know anything about him the way that Philo seems to think for 11 parts only to quit in the 12th? And the fact is we don't know. This was the last thing that he wrote and he died like days after he finished it. Um, we have no idea whether Hume was... To, the, to his end an agnostic in the hard sense or an actual theist, whether he converted halfway along or not, whether Philo represents what he really believes or if Cleanthes better represents it, whether he converted to Cleanthes' position over the course of writing this dialogue. Like, we have no idea. Um, and it's one of the great mysteries of philosophical thought and certainly of Hume's life. Um, we don't know. Now, Hume's legacy is his skepticism. Like, this is the thing that is very much carried away um, from the study of Hume. And this is sort of the, the moment, the important philosophical idea that he contributes to the Enlightenment. Uh, like, he is coming, I think he's writing in the 1760s or thereabouts. Um, so, like, well towards the middle part of the Enlightenment in the 18th century. He's writing, like, a couple decades before the Declaration of Independence, um, several decades before the French Revolution, but at the same time as you have, like, the French philosophs like Voltaire and, and Montesquieu and Rousseau writing, um, and quite a ways after, like, Locke and Hobbes and the other great British empiricists. Um, but he very much closes the book on a lot of philosophy. Like in his other work, The Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding, he contends that metaphysics is nonsense. Like everything that we have been reading in this class so far is garbage um, because it all relies on argumentation that is just nonsense. That the only thing that we have to argue with is our senses, our experience. And every time that we depart from them, we are basically wandering into no man's land as far as knowledge is concerned. Um, which it's important to note this because our next reading is going to be Nietzsche. And Nietzsche has a very similar position. Nietzsche is reacting to the sort of orderly philosophy of the time, um, which is weird because we just finished reading a skeptic who like systematically destroyed all those ideas. Um, so in the little bit of time that I have left, I need to talk about Immanuel Kant. 
Um, Hume is a great skeptic, and Hume destroys much of the philosophy that comes before him and questions many of the philosophical ideas that come before him. Um, he basically says, you know, science is one thing and reason another, and then two will never meet. Um, we cannot have a priori reasoning. And this really frustrated Kant. Um, Kant, who lived several decades after Hume, who, you know, would be the greatest philosopher of the late 18th century, especially, and perhaps the greatest philosopher of the entire modern period. Um, it's a shame that we don't read him in this class, but he's also famously difficult to understand. So, you know, you just, like, I, I wouldn't possibly give Kant to an intro to philosophy class. Um, like, when I teach ethics, we read a little bit of Kant, but it's not even, like, his hardcore stuff. Um, Kant's critique of pure reason is famously, like, obscure and confusing, um, to the point that, like, German students apparently will get it translated into English, because it's easier to understand in English than it is in German. Um, Kant's a pain in the ass, in short, but... Kant makes one of the single most profound philosophical arguments using one of the most profound and complicated philosophical systems in the history of the discipline. And his primary goal is to beat Hume. Um, like, he says that Hume woke Kant from his dogmatic slumber. Um, that up until that point, like, he was just taking Plato and Aristotle and Aquinas and Descartes and just taking it for granted. Like, whatever those people said, whatever their ideas were, whatever rationality told him, he believed. And then Hume comes guns blazing and says metaphysics is garbage, rationality doesn't apply to the real world. Like, there is always a barrier between experience and knowledge, rationality, and that barrier can never be overcome. And Kant's like, that can't be right. Um, and Kant then tries to basically rescue science and metaphysics from Hume's skepticism. Um, Kant is basically looking for what he calls a synthetic a priori judgment, a way to combine stuff that we know before experience and use it to understand and process our experience in a way that makes it more than just custom or habit and instead turns it into real knowledge, science and rationality. Um, and he does. Like, he has this brilliant system. It spans over, like, three or four books. It's this magnificent, like, monument to philosophy. And it is said that Kant is, like, the single greatest philosopher after Plato. Like, heck, if you look at the table of contents in our book, you'll see that, like, Plato has, like, 200 pages devoted to him. Aristotle has 150 pages devoted to him. And Kant has, like, another 200 pages. Like, he and Plato are the front runners as far as sheer page length in our textbook because he and Plato are considered the two greatest philosophers who ever lived, bar none. Like, nobody comes even close after Kant and Plato. Um, so he is a huge deal. And his huge deal is he builds a system. He fixes the holes that Hume had been pointed out. Um, and he ushers in a completely new perspective on philosophy. Um, so Nietzsche isn't responding to Hume's skepticism. Nietzsche would probably be really down with Hume's skepticism um, if he were ever, like, to admit that he, you know, was taking hints from anyone. Um, instead, Nietzsche is reacting to Kant. 
Um, Kant and Hegel, these grand systematizers, the German idealists with their huge books about huge ideas and all of these complicated interlocking pieces that help us to understand the world in this new and fascinating way. Nietzsche's like, it is all nonsense and I reject all of it, along with Christianity, along with Plato, along with traditional philosophy, along with anyone who tries to systematically understand the universe. So keep that in mind as you read Nietzsche. Like, Nietzsche and Hume are actually fairly well allied. Um, their common enemy is the systematic philosophy of guys like Kant and Hegel, or in Hume's case, the systematic philosophy of rationalists like Descartes and Spinoza. Um, but also, when you're reading Nietzsche, be careful. Um, Nietzsche is a very compelling philosopher. He speaks eloquently, and it is very easy to get caught up in what he has to say. He is also very much sort of giving us just the Cliff's Notes versions of his own ideas. Um, like Plato and Descartes and Aquinas and Hume, they all gave us all of the steps of their reasoning process. Like we, did with, like we did in the Euthyphro with Plato, like we can count every single argument, every single definition. We can see exactly how we get from point to point. And while you can do that in Descartes and Hume and Aquinas, even though it's a little bit more difficult and a little bit more complicated, Nietzsche doesn't even try. Nietzsche describes his philosophy at one point as striding from mountaintop to mountaintop. He doesn't bother with all of the rationalization. He just gives you the conclusions, which makes him tricky to read, but also very compelling. Um, so be careful about him, because his legacy is a mixed one. Um, so for next week, we will discuss Nietzsche. We will discuss the Twilight of the Idols, um, at least as we have it in our textbook. Um, we will talk about his legacy and why it is so complicated and why he has become kind of a dangerous thinker in his own right. Um, and I hope that you enjoy him, but I hope that you are careful with him as well. Um, in the meantime, keep working on those research papers if i'm not mistaken this is the week they are due again i am recording this well in advance so who knows um everything could be changed in the six weeks between now and then um at any rate keep watching canvas and or moodle and for information about what exactly like are is involved with the research paper feel free to email me ask questions don't be a stranger i want these to be as good as possible um so keep up the good work, Nietzsche for next week, and happy writing.